good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and Stephanie Burke. We are here to talk about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. I came, I came in pretty hot there, didn't I, Matt? Did I come in too hot? Um, you're always hot. <laughs> I, I, I blew out my own eardrums there a little bit there when I when I came in. So, you know, hey, that's fine. I want to make sure we're waking people up. Some, You know, it's 10 o'clock on a Saturday night. Some people are probably getting ready to, to go to sleep and... They're like, oh, I'm just going to turn on Spooky South Coast and doze off into dreamland. And then I come in and wake them up. And now they'll be with us for the entire two hours, which is what we were hoping for. We are here to talk about the paranormal. And tonight we're going to be taking a turn down a different road than what we normally talk about. Usually we talk a lot about ghosts. That's kind of my thing. I know that's kind of your thing, Stephanie, although with you it's a different, with you it's spirits. It's kind of a different thing. It's both. But, uh,. You know, and with Moniz, Moniz is a lot in, in the UFO field. and But one of the topics, I know that it was something that Matt has always had an interest in, Matt Costa, but uh, but we don't really cover nearly enough, is, is cryptids. We haven't really done a good cryptid show in a long time. And for a lot of people who don't believe in, quote-unquote, paranormal, these crypto creatures are a lot easier for them to digest. I mean, Matt, you're somebody, too, that has always been kind of skeptical about a lot of the ghosts and UFO stories, some of the weirder things that we talk about. But when it comes to cryptids, you've you've always had an interest in that, I think, because uh, you said to me in the past, it seems more plausible. Uh, for cryptids to be in existence? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, we're um, they're discovering new species and things every day. There's parts of the world that we haven't even seen yet, parts of the ocean that we haven't even seen yet. Right. So. Yeah, and for all the time, I mean, and Matt does a great job on the Week in Weed, uh, Week in Weed. <laughs> that's Moniz. That's, that's, that's Mo- another program yeah, altogether. That's, that's what Moniz handles for, for the for the Twitter, but uh, the Week in Weird stories that, uh, that Matt puts out on the Twitter all the time, he does a great job of always finding these stories where they may have found a new species or where this creature was sighted that people aren't really sure what it was. Uh, so we do have a lot of that. And those are the stories, more often than not, those get retweeted and passed around more than some of the other stories that we put up there. So it's certainly something that people have an interest in, and it's something that people who are not, quote-unquote, paranormal people uh, can wrap their heads around and can be willing to accept. Well, we're going to talk about a case of the Minerva Monster with our guest Seth Breedlove coming up in just a little bit. There's a new film coming out that he's working on about the Minerva Monster. We'll talk about that, maybe some other cryptid cases as well. But uh, there's a few things that we want to discuss here at the top of the show. And one is, for those of you in the local area... There is the South Coast Toy and Comic Show. It's coming up on August. Uh, August. <laughs> you think I'm already? Think I'm ready to be done with winter already? Uh, April 11th and 12th at the Seaport Inn and Marina in Fairhaven. And again, you don't want to miss your, your chance to go to one of these events because the if it's anything like the last South Coast Toy and Comic Show, it got packed really fast there. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to take the chance of having to wait at the door and, and missing something. You want to get your tickets ahead of time. You can do so by going to southcoasttoyandcomic.com. Uh, they're extremely cheap. Uh, it, it, it is very limited, though, however. Uh, but it's only $10 for an adult for the day, $15 for an adult weekend pass. Kids are $6 and $10. They're also having a screening of The Last Dragon. You can watch the classic film on the 30th anniversary uh, with Bruce Leroy himself. 
<laughs> we'll get into that in a moment, but you also get popcorn with that. It'll be a 7 p.m. screening. Uh, you can add that to your ticket for only $5. You can also add the chance to attend a gallery reading with Tiffany Rice for $20. Uh, there will be one both Saturday and Sunday. So those are a few of the options if you decide to go to the South Coast Touring Comic Show. Who's going to be there, you ask? Well, let me tell you who's going to be there. Uh, Bill, Bu- I'm sorry, Buck, Bill Rogers. <laughs> Buck Rogers himself, Gil Gerard, will be there. One of my favorite people. I was never really a Buck Rogers guy. I didn't really watch it as a kid, but I can tell you I'm a Gil Gerard fan after hanging with him the last couple of years. Uh, Felix Silla, who is also on Buck Rogers. Uh, we've had him here on the show, right here in the spooky studio with us as well. Uh, Matt, I know we discussed this before, but is it Timac? Tamac? I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but it's it's Bruce Leroy from The Last Dragon. I think it is Timac. Timac. So there you go. Timac. Timac? I don't know. But The, the Last Dragon, uh, Bruce, Bruce Leroy from The Last Dragon will be there. Uh, Steve Cardenas from Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. The Devil's Reject Brandon Webb. Kedrosha Ona, the Queen of the Paranormal. And Tiffany Rice, Spirit Medium, will also be there as well. So that is the lineup for the 2015 South Coast Toy and Comic Show. Again, SouthCoastToyandComic.com is the website if you would like to go and get your tickets. And again, it's happening Saturday and Sunday, April 11th and 12th, 10 to 6 on Saturday, 10 to 5 on Sunday at the Seaport Inn and Marina. However, I'm sad because I won't be able to make it to the South Coast Toy and Comic no, Show this year. No, because I'm, I'm booked for something else. I'll be at Salem Con, which is happening that same weekend up in Salem, Massachusetts, April 10th through the 12th. And if you want to find out more about this event, you can go to mghparanormal.com. That stands for Mass Ghost Hunters Paranormal.com. And the lineup for this is incredible. John Zaffis, Brian Kano, Dustin Parry, Jeff Belanger, Scott Gruenwald, John Tobin, the Generic Black Shirt Paranormal Group, and myself will all be in attendance at this uh, great event, Salem Con. It's happening at the Hawthorne Hotel, which is haunted. Uh, it's a place that has a long history of being haunted, and uh, we'll be there. We'll also be doing some investigating on Saturday night at some locations to be revealed which should be a lot of fun. But there are still tickets available. If you want to try to get to Salem Con, uh, you can just go to mghparanormal.com. And, of course, we, we checked in uh, a few weeks ago with Mark Arvola of Mass Ghost Hunters Paranormal about Salem Con. We're going to get an update from them coming up in the next few weeks as well uh, because they have some very interesting things happening if you would like to get involved with them. I saw the lineup, too, of... Speakers of, of lectures. I did see that. Yeah. And I, I gave them my idea, which I'm very excited about. Because this is something that I've wanted to present for a while. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people shy away from it. And Mark and Lauren were like, no, hell no, don't shy away from it. That sounds great. I'm going to be doing a presentation that I'm calling Maybe Ghosts Aren't People Too. I did read that. Some alternative theories of what right. ghosts might be. So Why not? Yeah, I mean, everybody's kind of wrapped up in the idea of them being the souls of the deceased. I'm not sure that that's what it is. Well, at least at least a lot of what we're investigating, I'm not convinced that that's what it is. Mm-hmm. So I'll be presenting that, uh, and as well, there's going to be presentations from all of the speakers. But I think I'm following, if I remember correctly, I think I'm going on after Dustin goes, and then, uh, and then John Zaffis, and then me. Hold like, on, how can I follow John Zaffis? Why not? I think they're thinking that by the time I go on, like everybody's going to be going to get dinner or something. You're terrible. <laughs> that might be the plan for that. But uh, that that works fine for me. It was a really cool lineup. I do have to say, reading through the um, 
the topics each person's speaking on, I feel like it hasn't really done been done before. So it could be a whole different look to a Paracon. Yeah, well, that's and that's kind of what I'm excited about. Like Mark and Lauren, they've been to a lot of these things. Right. They kind of know how they go and they know how to change it up and make things different. And that's what they're really looking for. They're looking for a way to make it uh, not just different from other conventions, but also to kind of expand what's been said at other conventions as well. Here we go. I have the uh, the lineup here. So it'll kick off uh, with John Tobin exploring the psychology of the paranormal with Christopher DeCesare and Joe Chin as his guests for that. Uh, Then followed by Jeff Belanger presenting The Witch's Warty Nose. Jeff will take you through the almost complete history of spirit communication. Uh, Then Brian Cano will present Paralosophy. Paralosophy. Yeah, I said that right. Hashtag hashtag Paralosophy. Uh, Dustin Parry will uh, talk about the bigger questions. John Zaffis will do a Q&A. That will be followed by myself. Then Scott Gruenwald with his presentation, God Ate My Lunch. And then Michael Diamond with Moving Forward. So that's the lineup for Salem Con for the speakers. And I think it's like $10 to get tickets to go in and see those great speakers and to get to meet everybody uh, for the actual convention part itself. I think that the investigations may be sold out, but you can check on mghparanormal.com to find out more. Now, with these events coming up, and I, I mentioned the South Coast Toy and Comic Show, and of course, Rhode Island Comic Con will be coming back. There's the, uh, what's it, Super Mega Fest or whatever happening in Marlboro coming up at the, at the end of April, which I might have to make a road trip to because Chris Jericho was just announced as being there. So, see that? Might have to, might have to make that, make, make that journey. But, uh, especially knowing what a paranormal guy he is, mm-hmm. this is my chance to kind of go up and schmooze him. Only yeah, you were so. in Florida with me last year. Well, I, I've got an in with Jericho now. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, I, I, I might have to start calling. Well, I was going to say, I might have to start calling in favors, but the guy's already done me enough favors. So, But uh, <laughs> the the exciting thing about all these events happening is, you know, we're starting to see it growing here in Massachusetts and in, in, in mm-hmm. New England. We're starting to see more of these conventions happening. And I saw an argument today online that I want to just bring up to you guys. Because I know that you've been to these events. I know that you've been to some of these conventions. And I want to get your thoughts on it. There's, I, I guess it's Dragon Con, which is the big one down in Atlanta okay. uh, every summer. There's been some new rules that have been released about what people can wear when they're cosplaying. Hmm. If I understand the situation correctly. Now, I haven't read these rules myself. I'm just getting this information third hand from what people have been posting on social media. But apparently they're complaining that they don't want women wearing uh, you know, shirts that are too low cut or exposing too much skin. They don't want them wearing skirts or shorts that are too short or exposing ass cheeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so the, con- the the complaint here is that the girls, the women, who are dressing in these cosplay costumes are complaining that they're being ogled and, and touched and inappropriately fondled. You know, when you're walking around these conventions, mm-hmm. there is a, a mass of humanity right up against each other. Right. So if a guy wants to be a little bit perverted and, you know, kind of slide his hand down and give you a little pinch, he can do it. And you're probably not going to know who it was that did it. Right. So there's some concern about that. And, and so part of the hope of being able to avoid a lot of that is putting these rules in place. Well, there's been a huge backlash mm-hmm. by the cosplay community saying, well, how can they tell us what we can and can't wear? Uh, you know, how can they limit us in this? This isn't fair to us. Why should we have to be the ones to change what we're wearing because these jerks can't control themselves? 
That's a fine line in a very gray area. But here's my thoughts on it. Part of why they have these rules in place, or why they're putting these rules in place, I don't think it's just so that men don't fondle the the cosplay women mm-hmm. and it, and objectify them. I think part of it too is the fact that these are growing in popularity. These conventions, and you're having a lot of little kids come to them. Right. And maybe it's not appropriate for me walking around with your ass cheeks hanging out of your shorts if there's a small child in front of you. Right. So that's part of it, and I I, I just don't understand why. There's a need to completely sexify, if that's a word, mm-hmm. these costumes. It's one thing if you want to go and dress up as, I don't know, you know, give me a character, Snow White. You want to be Snow White. Mm-hmm. But do you have to be slutty Snow White? Right. You know, and, and, and do you have to make a sexually suggestive costume of a character? Or can, can't you just go dressed as a character? I mean, uh, from what I understand, isn't the idea of dressing as that character to be that character for the day? It makes sense to me. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm probably going to get hate mail after I say this, but if you dress the part, you have to kind of expect people to stare at you, to oogle you, to try to touch you, because you're almost asking for it. Well, is, isn't that, we're going to, we'll just kind of gloss over that you just use the asking for it phrase. No, I'm, I I'm know not what trying you mean. to be a jerk, but no, I, know what you mean. I mean, um, there are weirdos out there. You kind of have to be aware of that. But you're you're the only female in the room. Right. And you've worked in careers, mm-hmm. we'll say, where well, All right, let me just put it out there so it doesn't end up sounding way worse than it was. You were a bartender. I was a bartender, I was a model, I was a um a ring girl for ESPN. So you've done all these different yes. things. Now, obviously when you're signing up for being a model or being a ring girl, yep. You know, you know what you're signing up for. Absolutely. And you understand what that job entails. Mm-hmm. Well, when you're a bartender, mm-hmm. you know, you probably sign up thinking, I'm just going to go pour drinks for people. But then you realize as you go along, you know, maybe if you do this or do that or wear this or wear that, you're going to get a little bit more attention, a little bit more tips. Absolutely. So it's, it's not exactly right, but mm-hmm. you know what the end result is going to be. You know what you're doing oh, yeah. when you it's put on that low-cut shirt. Comes. And... I had to learn to deal with it because you can't wear a turtleneck to work. Um, and some some people just don't care. Women, men, doesn't really matter. Um, you know, you deal with, like, weird jealousy on both ends. It's just, or the, you know, whatever someone might be into. I've had girls that have asked to, I mean, like, crazy, crazy things. Like, can I touch you? Can I make out with you? And straight <laughs> girls. But, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, it just, it comes with the territory of you dress like that. You have to expect that someone is going to do something. Because not everybody has the same outlook as you do. Well, when we say do something, I mean, let's clarify. We're not expecting say that they're going to, yeah, something. they're not going to grab you and throw you up against the wall and take advantage of you. But, you know, they're going to look. I mean, it could happen, but yes. <laughs> right, right. But they're going to look. They're going to say yeah. something. They might make a comment, but they're going to look. Yep. And isn't that the point of wearing these costumes? the way that they wear them, isn't the point to get people to look to get attention? I would believe so. You're wearing this costume to be this character, to get to, to have people look at. And a lot of these people who are dressing in this part are mm-hmm. people who would never dress like that right. in their regular everyday life. And I think that that's part of the problem is that they don't, you know, you've been in a position like that. You've been yes. in a position where you've walked into a room and had eyes stare at you mm-hmm. and you've been able to kind of make the adjustment that's necessary for that. Mm-hmm. 
Whereas a lot of these people, they're, they're not used to dressing that way, so they're not used to the attention that comes with that. Right. And they're inhabiting this other character, and they're not realizing that, you know, that's still you in that character, and you might not be um, able to deal with that. Matt, you're a guy. You're a red-blooded American yes, male. And I've been to these conventions with yep. you. And I've I I eaten enough beef jerky to qualify as a man. And I know that when we go to these things, Going on you know, river rafting trips. part of what we're doing is we're looking at some of these costumes, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, you're like, I'm, I'm going to sound so sexist. It's hard, it's hard not to. It, it's a tough subject. But it is. It's You're wearing a costume to be looked at. I mean, you have to expect that people are going to look at you with envy and people are going to look at you with lust, I guess. I mean, okay. So I came here oh. tonight and I'm, I'm dressed in all black. And covered from head to toe. If I came here tonight in bra and underwear like some of these girls wear, would you guys both be able to sit here and have a serious conversation with me? Probably not. Well, you'd be well, like, "What the heck is she doing?" Or, <laughs> "Hey, lo- you know, like looking at me like I'm I have three heads." But we would have to make some adjustments for the cameras, probably, because I'd be like, "Matt, we need, we need a we need a wider shot on Stephanie's camera. We need to make sure we get that all in there. We need so the we ratings. We need the ratings uh, to go ratings. up." But I joked with you. Was it last year? Um... Yeah, it was last year at one of the cons that we were at. And, you know, some of the things I said, if I was wearing a completely different outfit right now, I think more people would stop at our table. You know, poking fun at the fact that people were walking around with their body parts hanging out all over the place. I know that at a different con, it's kind of a, it's on the same subject, but not really. I know that um, women were dressed in just pure latex and a pair of underwear. And parents were going up to security and complaining that their children were looking at a pair of boobs and they thought it was inappropriate. And right. that was a fine line of, do you kick the people out or do you let them stay? And um, it it's a weird situation because Comic-Cons aren't really for little kids. They're usually for adults that collect comics. But they've become for little kids. That's the problem. That's where the changes have been made. But they should be for little kids, too. I think right. so. I mean, Rhode Island Comic-Con does a great job of having a kid's area that's yes. separate it's on a separate floor which is good so if you want to bring your kids and have your kids have fun they never have to go up to the main convention floor and they never have to know what's going on up yeah. there they never have to see some of the costumes that are walking around but then again a lot of the parents want to go up there and experience it for themselves and they mm-hmm. want to bring the kids along because there is some cool stuff to see and some cool people to meet right. but it's it is it's a, it's a hard balance and i would never want to say to a woman you know you're asking for it you deserve what you get I would never oh, want to no, put it like that, in that but way, but you have to know what to expect if you are putting yourself out there like that. And and and, and I kind of say like you have to look at it like this, okay? They're going to look, they're going to whistle, they're going to make comments, mm-hmm. they're going to catcall. That's going to come with the territory. Right. The minute it goes over that, then we have a problem. But until then, you have to be willing to accept mm-hmm. that eventuality. I mean, those people have to walk down the street into their car dressed like that, too. So it's not just the event itself. You're walking out in public. You might even go to the convenience store dressed like that. Mm-hmm. So you're kind and of And they do, yourself... because they're trying to get the extra attention. Right. So what would the rules be in society walking to your car if you were touched or, you know, and in, something inappropriate happened? Um, why are the rules different at Comic-Con? That's another way to look at it. Um, but even so... Maybe wear a long trench coat. <laughs> <laughs> that might be worse. I don't know. It just I might increase the fantasy a little bit for some people. But you're, you're looking right. at 
you're looking at two, and I don't mean to, to stereotype everybody that goes to these comic but you're looking at a lot of repressed sexual energy right. at a Comic-Con. So this is a chance for both the people wearing the costumes and those looking at them, a way for them to kind of work some of that out. So it's let me put it this way. It's not a position I'd want to be in. I wouldn't want to no. be running one of these comic conventions with some of the things that uh, you would never expect would pop up, but that do. These mm-hmm. are some of the challenges involved. Uh, I can always say this, that you know the, <laughs> the ones that I've been involved with, the safety of everybody there is first and foremost, so right. they would never condone any type of activity like that. So if you do decide to wear a risque costume and you go there and you're being harassed in any way, make sure you find an event organizer or a police officer right away and let them know. Uh, certainly don't let it go on because the comment they make to you might be something worse they do to somebody else Absolutely. a little bit later on in the day. But now are they Are they looking for a restriction on uh, the attendees, the people who actually pay? Or because I do know they have professional cosplayers that attend. As you well. know, I, I don't know what the differentiation is between them. I'm, I'm sure that it would be uh, kind of an across the board. Like you couldn't say, all right, you can have your boobs hanging out, but because we're paying you to be here, but because you paid us to be here, you can't have your boobs hanging out or vice right. versa. I would think it would be the other way around. It gets weird all around no matter which way you look at it. My problem wasn't so much with the you know the body parts hanging out mm-hmm. and the exposed skin. My problem was with that one girl that had the gigantic wings at, uh, mm-hmm. at Rhode Island Comic Con last year that we couldn't get down the aisle because she was blocking the aisles with her wings. That's going That's overboard. That's a safety issue. Yeah. <laughs> That's going overboard. Like when when they had that issue where there was too many people in the building, I'm pretty sure that they could have just avoided having you know hitting the fire code by just, just having her take those wings off. Probably. And then they could have fit people in there a little bit more easily. All right. Well, uh, we will certainly pick up this conversation a little bit further down the line, and I think that it would be a great discussion to have uh, at some point with we can bring in Steve Perry and some of the other organizers of some of these events and see what they have to say about this. We'll talk to some professional cosplayers as well. So if you have any kind of comment, on it, just send us your thoughts, Spooky Crew at SpookySouthCoast.com, or you can tweet us at SpookySC. And of course, during the course of the show, when we're on the air live Saturday nights, you can use the hashtag SpookyLive on Twitter, and it'll all conglomerate there, I guess, if I'm using that word right. Uh, it'll all be right there for you to see on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side. We'll be joined by our guest, Seth Breedlove, to talk about the Minerva Monster and some other cryptid tales coming up here on Spooky South Coast on the new 1420 WBSM. Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg with you, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa and Stephanie Burke. Oops, if I pot down the right slide. There we go. <laughs> I like the dance moves. You should see me on Saturday mornings when I host the Tim Weisberg Show. Really? From 6 to 9 a.m. right here on the new 1420 WBSM. I'll play all kinds of music and I'll dance for Greg oh, while he's in the why newsroom. Why isn't this on so. video? We don't, we don't have enough people here in the morning to handle that. Somebody needs to record it on a cell phone at least. I need to see those dance moves. We have to start putting up more videos. I'm, I'm looking into getting a GoPro so we can have more more videos. That's good. That's good news. So, And if you want to make a donation, SpookySouthCoast.com, uh, GoFundMe. 
facebook.com slash bookie south coast and uh, and speaking of crowdfunding it's actually been uh, very successful for our our guest tonight seth breedlove is a freelance investigative journalist and podcast host he has contributed content to numerous websites on a variety of topics he served as columnist for the Missoula independent helming a weekly column titled slice of life that ran on the front page of the paper in addition to his column he has covered news stories and daily assignments for the medina gazette he co-hosts a pop culture podcast called ancillary characters with his friends alan and paul a new media enthusiast he began podcasting in the mid-2000s and continues to test the boundaries of the medium each week in 2014 he started says what a podcast about bigfoot with co-host mark maskey where each week they discuss the subject as a whole and interview various personalities from the field Seth has also researched and examined historical Bigfoot reports from across the country, compiling an extensive database of newspaper articles dating back to the early 1800s. He maintained a bi-weekly column for the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, which examined possible Bigfoot historical newspaper reports from around the state of Ohio. In 2013, Seth began researching the Minerva Monster case, which is what we'll be talking about with him tonight. And we welcome to the program a longtime fan of the show, and we're glad to have him on. Finally, Seth Breedlove. Hello, Seth. How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. And uh, we're very excited to talk about this case because we, I've never heard of the Minerva Monster before, which, you know, maybe that's uh, partly on me for, for not deep, uh, digging deep enough into cryptid reports. But I mentioned it to Matt Moniz earlier the show. He's not here because he's traveling, but I mentioned it to him earlier, and he was already telling me about conversations uh, he'd had in the past about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a well-known case in certain circles, but um, I'm not sure outside of the Bigfoot community or even the Ohio Bigfoot community that it's very well-known. Um, we discovered when we were, you know, obviously out shooting the movie that even people that live in Minerva had never heard of it. Well, I mean, Moniz is also pretty friendly with Don Keating, so and I'm sure you know Don uh, yeah. being part of the Bigfoot community out there, so... Uh, you know, I'm sure that's probably where he's heard of it, but you're right. I mean, it's not one of those things that stands out as, you know, one of the central American monster figures. I mean, we have some of the, you know, the skunk ape and, and some of these other creatures that uh, stand out in people's minds. But uh, this story seems like it's got a lot of history to it, even if folks don't know that much about it. Yeah, definitely. And it's it had a huge impact on a lot of people who... Uh, are are still involved in bigfooting today like you know Don Keating obviously uh, Matt Moneymaker was out at the uh in in the location um there were Robert W Morgan obviously spent a lot of time in fact he was one of the first people there after the case kind of broke so it's it it had a big effect on uh bigfooters and bigfooting but it also had this crazy effect on like local media and and even international media cuz it was run on television stations in Japan and Germany, and, and it became this kind of global story. Well, usually, I mean, when, when these type of stories broke, you know, 35, 40 years ago, it wasn't like it is today where you have certain segmented portions of the news media that will take it seriously and, and certain people that will just laugh it off. Uh, back then, you know, these stories were kind of considered the woo-woo topics, and a lot of media outlets wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole until it started happening in their own backyard. And is that kind of what happened in, in that area where, you know, once it became almost like a reality for local media, they had to pay attention to it? 
You know, I, I don't even know if at that point they were running stories in papers here on local Bigfoot sightings. I'm not, I, I mean, I, I obviously have done a lot of research into historical sightings and I know they, they were there, but they, you know, this is back when they were just called mystery apes and wild men. Um, this story broke in the Akron Beacon Journal, which is one of the, the biggest newspapers in the state. And the reporter who uh, investigated it, Barbara Galloway, she she's actually in our movie, but she automatically believed the family's story after speaking to them and, and being out at their house. And there was a seriousness that she – her articles have a very – investigative journalist approach that I enjoy and I really like them. There are other local papers that investigated it too, but hers especially was very serious. She took the she took the incident very seriously and she talked to the family and she got their actual opinions on things and if you read those initial reports it's really interesting. It's like this window into, you know, what people thought of this subject in nineteen seventy eight and surprisingly I mean, she took it. She took it seriously, and and I think it in, ended up even informing, kind of what she. I don't know that I go so far as to say that it changed her worldview, but I think it did open her eyes to the fact that there isn't necessarily an, an easy explanation to some of these uh, Bigfoot or or even just general monster type reports. And she she definitely that came across in the uh, article she wrote for the for the story. So I think the media here actually took this fairly seriously it, it was more it was actually down to the community itself that that didn't seem to take it as seriously well i, I was going to say you know you're you're a journalist i'm a journalist we kind of have a built-in bs detector to some degree and, right. and we're not going to throw ourselves wholeheartedly behind a story that we think might not be based in truth and in fact and and the story itself uh seemed pretty convincing uh, at least in that regard to to law enforcement to to the media but what what was it about this story that the locals didn't buy into right away well, why don't we kind of set up the story a little bit for folks too Sure, sure, yeah. In in August of 1978, uh, this one particular family, uh, the Caton family, that lived outside, right outside the city limits of a small town here in eastern Ohio called Minerva, um, began having run-ins with a, a creature, uh, upright walking, hair-covered creature that, that would come uh, kind of out of the woods behind their house. Um, there's now the that's the story that you would read if you were reading like the Akron Beacon Journal. August 1978, creature shows up, bam, everything starts. the The truth of the matter is that stuff was going on way before that, like as far as four years before that. Um, there were run-ins with this thing, or not necessarily run-ins, but sightings and interactions with it of uh, varying degrees, possibly even uh, an actual attack on one of the younger Caton boys. Uh, in which a friend of his was bit by this thing. This is according to Howie Caton. But anyway, uh, over that August of 1978, one particular week, they they were uh, the family was outside their house, and this creature came out of the woods, and it was flanked by two smaller creatures, and it kind of spooked them. And they went inside the house. The creature came down to the house, walked right up to the kitchen window where the family had gathered, and looked in at them from, you know, less than a few feet away. 
Um, the whole family had a clear vision of this thing. They they all gave police. Uh, they all filed a police report that gave matching descriptions for the creature. Uh, the most interesting part of the case is what ended up leading the family to call the police was that there was an incident with their dog. They had two German Shepherd dogs, really you know big dogs, and uh, one of them in particular was uh, going crazy one night, just barking up a storm. And in the morning, the dog was found ripped out of its dog collar with its neck snapped. And uh, there was no explanation for that. One interesting aspect to that as well is that the other dog, there were two German Shepherds, the other dog was hiding in a uh, six-foot-deep tunnel that it had dug under its house. And I guess it was still skittish for weeks after that. Um, the, the sheriff said he had no explanation for it. Um, anyway, the, the Caton family called the police the same night that they went to the kitchen and the thing came to the window. The police came out and uh, investigated the story, and the next day um, the Akron Beacon Journal kind of came out and started you know, following up on the story and writing uh, these articles about it. And once that happened, it kind of broke the AP wire, and then uh, various media news stations from all over the state kind of descended on Minerva. And what happened then is uh, hunters, Bigfoot, quote-unquote hunters, descended on uh, Minerva. And, and mostly what this sounds like it was to me, and this is how Howie kind of explained it to us, is it was mostly just truckloads of drunk hillbillies with guns uh, and beer. So they, they descend on the Caton's house. They literally would pull up in their driveway, uh, block up, block the road up outside, which is a major road. It's the Lincoln Highway that runs coast to coast. It's a historical, you know, obviously a historical landmark. And they would actually pull up and block the road. There were so many hunters going up into the woods to shoot a Bigfoot. And it, it just became this huge media sensation. And this all took place um, over late summer of 1978. But it, it didn't really stop. I mean, technically, <clears throat> there's still ongoing activity to this day. So it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting story. A lot of different sightings. I'm kind of giving the entire story right here. Some of these questions you're probably going to ask me again, or want to flush out. But well, um, you know, you know how it is. works on on this show. Though we just have a conversation. So wherever it leads us, you know, we don't know where we'll go. Uh, that's right. what's, that's what's so fun about it. But. When you're talking about the all the media reports that came out about this, and then there's other sightings that are happening, just timeline-wise, were these sightings happening after the reports had already hit the, the the media, or was this a matter of you know more reports were coming in before it was really well known? Because it seems like from the timeline you're giving us, you know, there was the original Caton sighting. Uh, the the police go out, they investigate that. Usually, how it works at a newspaper is they call the police, uh, the, you know, right before deadline and say hey, anything else to report, and you know maybe they got yeah. tipped off as to what was happening, and and it might have been in the next day's paper. So was this already in the media before these further sightings came, or were these further sightings a result of reading those reports? Yeah, you got to watch because, like, yeah, like you said, we're both journalists, so you have an eye for that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of reports did start coming in after this, so you've got to be very careful. The other thing that's really interesting about this case is that uh, Minerva is not that far from Pennsylvania, and therefore there were black bears spotted in and around Minerva 
In fact, we talked to someone from that area who swears up and down that he remembers reading within a week or two of the Minerva Monster reports. He swears he either remembers reading or seeing on TV that a black bear and two cubs were were actually captured by uh, Ohio Division of Natural Resources and taken back to PA. Um, we haven't been able to turn up that story. I don't know where he's getting that from. I'd love to know because that's a really interesting piece of uh, information, you know, relating to the story. I will say the, the sheriff that investigated it did not think it was a black bear. But, yeah, a lot of reports did take place afterward, but there were just as many that took place before, and I'm talking decades before. I mean, we have an interview in our movie with a guy whose who's dad said he saw something back in 57, um, and these obviously are 78. And then we have uh, a guy that we talked to, uh, Scott, I can't remember his last name. Scott called us probably the first week in January, and we had wrapped filming. And Scott gave me a call, and he said, uh, you know, I have, I had a sighting of this strange creature back in 1978. And he's like, it's it's haunted me ever since. And, and you know, I started talking to him about the case, and he had actually never heard of the Catons. He'd never read the stories. He'd never heard of the Catons. And, you know, sometimes, obviously, your your BS detector goes up because you want to make sure, well, did you know, is he just telling me this? So we went out to his house. I thought it was worth filming. We went out to his house and interviewed him. And sure enough, I mean, as far as I can tell, uh, and I have a pretty good read on people, I honestly don't think he knew anything about the Caton sighting. He had heard the, the term Minerva Monster, but he didn't know the context or anything. Mm-hmm. And... um his sighting was really interesting and it was something we wanted in the movie because the the Minerva monster as seen by the Catons was always seen with these two smaller creatures. Now the way they described them was uh cougars or panthers like two smaller uh on all fours creatures. But on the other hand, Howie told me he never actually saw the front legs on the ground. It almost looked like they were walking on hind legs just stooped forward. Um So what interested me so much about Scott's interview was that Scott had seen something in the summer of 78 within probably two weeks before the Caton sightings. Uh, He was with a friend. He was eight years old. Him and a friend were in the woods. And what he referred to as an old witch, an old hairy witch, uh, came out of the woods with these two smaller uh, bipedal animals running behind it. And they, he said it's haunted him to this day. Him and his friend just took off, you know, absolutely scared to death. But he was relaying this information to us, and what was so interesting was he had no idea that there had been other sightings of these two smaller animals. And, and his description of the creature lined up perfectly with the cadence. So uh, there, there definitely were a lot of sightings in and around that area. There were sightings in the – there's a trailer park – probably not more than three or 400 yards from the Caton's house. There's a mobile home park there that had activity for years. I don't think it still does today, but there, there had been a lot of rock throws onto, you know, the roofs of houses and mobile homes and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, and uh, so that all took place over that, definitely over that summer of 78, but, but the history is there. There's, you know, all the way back to 57 is the earliest report we have. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, if you could even get further into the history of the area, delving into some of the natives that lived there at the time and, and some of the, you know, I'm sure you'll find that there's probably similar sightings that have happened over the years. But it, it begs the question that when you have an area like that, that is a hotbed of sightings, especially over a, a period of time like that, then 
how is it that these creatures can come and and then go so quickly? How is it that there are these few sightings and then all of a sudden they just completely stop? Yeah, well, they they didn't stop. I mean, like I said, they're still going on today. And sure. this area where these take place is um, probably not more than 35 minutes from Salt Fork, which is obviously, you know, the, the Bigfoot mecca here in Ohio. Um, Salt Fork State Park is only 35 minutes. It's it's not that far from Beaver Creek, which is another area. I mean, that whole that whole region of Ohio is just rife with reports. And they, like you said, there is a history there. Um, the the earliest report in that area that I have goes back to the late 1800s. I don't have an exact date, but I mean, you're not even far from Coshocton County, which I consider the actual Bigfoot mecca of Ohio. Coshocton County has some of the best documented Bigfoot type creature reports on record that no one seems to know about. I have reports that were run in newspapers in Coshocton County starting in the early 1900s and then running up into 1930s of giant apes uh, leaping out of trees and and posses of men going hunting for giant apes. And there's a history. I've done what I could to research these stories, and there's a history of these people actually existing. And so it doesn't seem like this is some sort of, you know, con job by the newspaper just to sell, you know, papers. There's it's it's interesting that there there are these flurries of activity like this though you know and it almost and what what howie actually told us is that it seemed like the more hunters and the more people got interested the more this thing seemed to show up almost like it was you know curious about all the activity around the house and and that's what i like about this case it's so different than some of these other stories we hear it's not it's not a one and done it's not a flap that happens and then and then you never hear from it again it's it's the fact that you have people who are coming to you still, uh, and, and then when this movie comes out, you're going to get even more reports that are going to start rolling in. Uh, that makes me think that this could be a flesh and blood creature that lives in the area and just has not been drawn out enough yet by humans. Yeah, and and we have, we've probably received three or four reports um, that aren't documented by anyone, BFRO, Don Keating, anyone. Um, since the movie kind of started making its rounds, uh, we've got, you know, actually, actually, my wife's mother's cousin, that's not confusing, she contacted <laughs> me through Facebook because she lived out in Minerva, and a friend of hers had seen this creature cross the road in front of her car one night while driving home. And that's actually the second uh, road crossing report I've taken from right outside of Minerva. And, you know, when we were out there, we obviously would speak to people that knew someone that knew someone that had seen a Bigfoot, you know, in the woods. And it's a, it's a really interesting um, study. It, it does seem like it's a flesh and blood creature out there. Um, the only other thing I can come up with is that, you know, this might be a case where some sort of um, psychological things going on where everyone, you know, this creature becomes this local celebrity basically and then everyone wants to, you know, claim a sighting. But it doesn't, from, from most of the people I've talked to, that doesn't seem to be the case, especially people who've never even told anyone about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that happens if you look at you know, say if instead of Bigfoot or or some sort of mo- monster creature that was seen, you know, let's just say what was it, you know, nineteen seventy. So say say Warren Beatty was seen in town, and and one oh, yeah. person interacted with Warren Beatty, but all of a sudden, you know, everybody would have stories about how they encountered Warren Beatty while he was in town. Sure. Not sure. not that Warren Beatty is Bigfoot necessarily, but it's well, I mean it's he's possible. getting old though. He's yeah. kind of. 
I mean, he kind of looks like it now. <laughs> but, you know, just as an example of that, that's what happens. People want to become part of the story. And, and they right. want to, they want to be special and they want to feel like they are part of it. And, and so they, you know, you, some, you have to wade through some of those reports. And, and, and being a journalist, you know that. You know, when, when you're interviewing people who experience something, doing, you know, spot news coverage, having to run out there and, and cover something live as it happens, you have to determine who actually saw something and who's just BSing you because they want to get their name in the paper. Oh, yeah, and, and that's what's so interesting about the Caton family was uh, they didn't want any attention. They, and to this day, they don't want any attention. Um, they, they didn't want their names in the paper. They didn't want this kind of uh, media firestorm that ended up coming down on them. Um, and, and, you know, to be honest with you, the, the, the hardest interview I've ever had to land for anything I've ever done was getting Howie Caton to talk on camera. Um, it took multiple phone calls and just kind of talking to him and, you know, the, kind, kind of convincing him, we're not out to do a hatchet job on you and your family. We, ju- we just want to tell the story the way you, you know, experienced it. And um, it took me, even the day we showed up to do the interview, uh, we got out of the car. I got there a little earlier than my team, and I, I got there, and I went up to the door, and he opened the door, and the first thing he said to me was, I changed my mind. I'm not going to come on camera. Hmm. And it took me probably another 35 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that, talking to him to convince him, listen, we're, I promise you, we are not here, you know, to make you look stupid. We're not here to dredge up the past. One of the, the best compliments I've had since starting this project was uh, talking to Howie a few weeks ago. And I said, hey, Howie, you know, I just want to double check. Have you had attention because of this story? And he said, yeah, there's been a lot of attention. Because locally, there's, this is kind of blown up for some reason. Um, people are just interested in the story, I guess. But he said, yeah, there's there's been some attention. I said, well, you know, nothing negative. And he said, absolutely not. He said, it's 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 nothing like 78. He said, everyone's very positive. He's like, I haven't been made fun of or anything. And, and he had told me that that summer in 1978 almost ruined the last two years of his high school career. He said he, he was miserable like the last two years of of high school because of this. Yeah, and it's amazing how much you would think just having this one little brief encounter can can impact uh, somebody's life, not just at the time, but just for years going forward. And and for some people, they just they never recover from it. For some people, they don't like being singled out and they don't like being uh, known for something like this. And and that makes them even more uh, leery of who they share the story with. So it makes it harder to get to the truth of the matter when when you can't get the the eyeball witness who saw it themselves. You can't get them to agree to talk to you because they're still afraid of the repercussions. So it, it, it sounds like at least, you know, you've been able to, to convince them. And that's the hardest thing to do in, in your role is to be able to convince people that it, it is going to be okay because all they're thinking in their mind is, you know, the worst case scenario. They're not thinking of the best case scenario, which is the therapeutic value of finally getting the story out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and seeing the town kind of rally, <laughs> I mean, we could talk about this a little later, too, but, I mean, the town's kind of rallied behind the movie, and, and I think when the movie actually comes out and we get to show it in Minerva and, and the Catons get to come and see how they're portrayed on film, and the, they'll get to hear, you know, the sheriff and the, the reporters talk about the honesty of the family, uh, I think that'll be great just for them, you know, like you said, like a therapeutic thing almost. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Well, we are going to uh, take a break here coming up uh, for the news. When we come back on the other side, we'll talk more about the Minerva Monster. I also want now it's important to note that this is part of a series uh, that will be called Small Town Monsters. So we'll talk about some of the other cases that you may focus in on that. We'll also talk about the process of getting this film made. And I, I want to talk to you about your approach in that, the tone that you wanted to take, and, and everything that's involved in the filmmaking aspect of things. And we'll talk about a variety of other topics as well. We'll also take your calls for our guest, Seth Breed love at 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. If you want to share your questions with us over email, spookycrew at spookysouthcoast.com. You can also tweet them to us at spookysc or using the hashtag spookylive, which is all just right there for you to see on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. You can see what's going on in the studio and read the tweets with the Spooky Live hashtag as they happen. So a lot of different ways for you to get interactive with us. The best way, of course, is to call in 508-996-0500-877-996-1420. Those are the numbers. Coming up on the other side as well, we'll also give you the information about our latest Legend Trips event. And if you like hearing stories like this, if you like hearing stories that are true, uh, that just seem like they can't be believable, but they have to be because there's no reason anybody would make them up. Then you want to stay tuned for when we make this announcement about what our next Legend Trips event is because it's not like things we've done in the past. It, it won't require you to you know, have to crawl around in a dirty, abandoned building. It won't require you to have to load yourself up with all kinds of paranormal gear. All it requires to you to bring is an open mind, and you get to stay in your seat the entire time. So we'll give you all the info about that coming up in the next hour. Real quickly, Seth. Uh, what's the website that everybody can go to to find out more about the film? You know what? As of right now, it's just Facebook.com slash Minerva Monster, but there is a website in, in the works. Excellent. So it'll be MinervaMonster.com. Awesome. So we will stay tuned for that, and also stay tuned for more of our interview with Seth coming up after the news. Again, if you want to get a hold of us, 508-996-0500-877-996-1420, or also on Twitter using the hashtag SpookyLive. I see all the tweets rolling in. Uh, we think we've got the audio problem fixed. That's just what happens here. We can't depend on technology all the time here. But I can tell you that WBSM is working on fixing some of these issues and making it so that Spooky TV can be bigger and better each and every week. So we'll hopefully have more news about that coming up in the future. But for now, we go to the news and then more Spooky South Coast after that. How many kids you got? (laughs) I love when Dennis Miller just breaks into uh, Spooky South Coast, don't you? (laughs) Dennis, if you're listening, anytime you want to come on, you're more than welcome. Welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with Stephanie Burke and the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor, Matt Moniz, is traveling and will be returning soon to the program uh, for, for a little while. This going to go again. This, this guy's all over the place, man. The, the work that he does for us all over the world. 
<laughs> Maybe not all over the world, but uh, right. he's uh, he's actually got a few things that he's working on for us uh, as part of the show. So we'll get into all that coming up in the future. Oh, that call dropped off. All right. And uh, just for those of you listening here locally, just want to make you all aware that tomorrow morning we will have live coverage of the 38th annual New Bedford Half Marathon beginning at 10 a.m. We'll have Phil Paleologus live from the starting line and Taylor Cormier live from the lead truck. So little note there about the half marathon tomorrow. I'll be on the truck as well, tweeting for the Standard Times. So that should be fun. Everybody that follows me on Twitter... Uh, at Tim Weisberg, I'll try and make sure I tweet it from the Standard Times account, and not from my personal, but can't make any problems. Are you going to be in front of the runners? Yes, I will be. I'll be okay. on the truck in front of the the lead runners. Will you eat a cheeseburger in front of runners? I will be taunt. I will be taunting them. Are you going to dangle a cheeseburger as people are running? I will be taunting them, taunting them heartily. That's what Although, I do. All those people are probably really healthy, so you'd have to do like a veggie burger or kale chips. Or I guess something. so. No, I don't know. I don't know. Hold like a Trader Joe's gift certificate or something. Because they're yeah. they're getting chowder and a fish sandwich as soon as they're done. Oh, so that's good. that's the post race meal. Deal. Healthy. Eh, it's a fish sandwich with cheese. How far is a half marathon? Fish is gross. Uh, Thirteen miles. Hmm. That's a long way. Right. It's, I don't know if I'd run that long for a chowder. It's basically just to give you a quick overview, and I won't I won't waste too much time on this because our guest is waiting to to come back that's on with right, us. But right. quick overview: they start in front of uh, City Hall. And they go down Rockdale area, you mm. know what I mean? Like yep. go, go down that direction. And then it goes all the way down like by Building 19, wow. uh, over down um, uh, Halfway Road, down Halfway, down the Big Hill. Yep. And, and it comes all the way back around. And then it goes down the south end and it comes back. It's, it's pretty intense. Nice. But it's, it's, it's a nice ride when you're on the mm-hmm. back of the truck. I wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't want to run it. No way. But uh, it, it's nice when you're on the back of the truck, provided it's not snowing and raining and all that other stuff. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. But, however, if you do want to join us on our next Great Legend Trips event, this one, you don't even have to worry about being exposed to the elements. It's indoors. You don't even have to leave your seat because it's an evening of ghost stories and New England legends. It's happening on May 22nd, and it'll be taking place at the Blackstone River Theater in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Uh, tickets are just $15 for this event if you buy them ahead of time or $20 at the door. You have never seen anything like this before. For one night only, we are bringing the campfire and the ghosts to you. From the leading authorities on spooks and legends comes a come for a night of haunted history and eerie tales from across New England featuring the haunting photography of Frank Grace. And anybody who has been to our Legend Trips page or been to our events or, or seen any of the photos that we post up, you've seen the work of Frank Grace. He's a fantastic photographer with Trig Photography uh, is the name of his, uh, his company here out of the New Bedford area. Just unbelievable photos and we're going to be using those as the backdrop as we share with you some of the creepiest true stories around New England this isn't going to be you know paranormal theory and and, and examples of of paranormal evidence and and a big PowerPoint thing with all kinds of you know words and glossary definitions and everything on the screen none of that we are taking you back to the reason why we all got involved in this in the first place the story the experience we're going to give you a creepy night like you've never had before on May 22nd at the Blackstone River Theater who's going to be there you ask who's going to be presenting this well it'll be Jeff Belanger and myself of course as well as Carl Johnson and Andrew Lee so if you've ever heard any of us talk, you know that we have experienced some of these stories for ourselves. We're well-versed in the history of some of these New England haunts, and we are going to present them to you in a manner like you've never seen before. Again, $15. Like, 
it, it would cost you about that to go see a 3D movie on a Friday night. Yeah, movies are expensive nowadays. You get to come and see this live show, and then you can hang out with us afterwards, and then we're all going to go to a bar. There's a bar there nearby. We're all going to go to the bar afterwards and, and either celebrate a job well done or drown our sorrows after we fail oh miserably. <laughs> everybody is an amazing, amazing storyteller on that lineup. Well, thank you. It's uh, and it's going to be one of those nights where I think we're going to be able to further the idea of of legend tripping in people's minds right. and get get them back to the idea. That it's not just about proving things. It's not just about investigating for the paranormal. It's about going out there and being part of the legend. And the other thing that I like about it too, and, and you know, this this is pretty exciting for the crowd as well. It's going to be filmed as part of a PBS documentary. Which is really cool. We're actually creating a documentary about the show and the process of creating the show. And this documentary will air in the fall on PBS. So you have the chance. Or if you're like me and you never thought you'd be highbrow enough to be on public television, this is your chance. There you go. So <laughs> I was, are you going to get an umbrella out of it? I don't know. At least like a tote bag. Something. I told Jeff, I said, you know, this will, this will be the second time that I'll have been on PBS after nice. being on New England Legends, and I never thought that would ever happen. I always thought, like... You're going to start developing a British accent. I may just. See that? I may just. I, <laughs> I may just have to move into uh, Downton Abbey. Good day, Governor. But, see, this this just shows that, you know, we can class up the paranormal a little bit. What are you going to wear? Well, that I don't know. Well, you're going to be on TV, so... Yeah, that that will be. I'm going to leave that up to Jeff. What he thinks is best. There you go. You know, and and then we, we <laughs> may want, need to bring Stephanie, my fashion consultant, on board. To Jeff? He's going to give I you agree. a Jeff Belanger T-shirt. That's true. That's <laughs> I'm true. Going to say Jeff Belanger rules. He can't wear it himself because that would just look like you know how like when you go see a band and the band wears right. their own shirt and it's super lame. Like Joe Elliott always wears a Def Leppard shirt. It's like, dude, come on. So anyway, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, but let's get back into the discussion with tonight's guest, Seth Breedlove, as we talk about the new documentary that's coming out, Minerva Monster. And, and Seth, we were saying before that this is actually part of a series that you have planned. Right, right. Uh, Small Town Monsters is the name of the series, and, and it was originally conceived as a book uh, series, and I pitched it to probably three or four different publishers um, as a series. And what happened is... For some reason, I hit this wall where every book publisher that I was pitching to had already received a Bigfoot book pitch, and they had already decided on that. So they were all like, oh, this sounds great, but can you come back later, like when we're not publishing five other Bigfoot books? And I was like, sure. Uh, But then I decided to uh, make it into a movie when I ran into – a couple guys, uh, Alan Morgan or Alan McGargle and Jesse Morgan, and uh, last summer, and we were out recording an episode of my my podcast. I was doing an interview with them, and uh, they had you know all this film equipment and everything. I was like, hey, why don't we make this into a movie uh, and then just keep going from there? Because there's you know there's probably literally thousands of these small town monster reports from around the United States, and um, Obviously, they're highlighted on shows like, you know, uh, Monsters and Mysteries and Mountain Monsters and all these other shows that kind of go into it. But uh, the goal for us, or the goal for me, I guess, from the beginning was to take this seriously, like very seriously, and kind of um, investigate the reports and not just investigate the reports, but kind of 
get a chance to introduce people to the town where the you know the sightings are taking place. So uh, when we were doing our you know our initial discussions over what the series would be like, what the what the movie, what this first movie would be like, I kept saying what I want to do is I I want Minerva to be a central character. Um, obviously, the Catons are probably our central character, but but I want the town of Minerva to be as central. So we we kind of introduce you to the town of Minerva in the movie, and and I think that's the format we're going to follow through throughout the series as we go on and, and start to do other films. Um, it has been uh, an incre like just an incredible and and uh, difficult <laughs> and crazy road uh, from when we started filming last. September until now, there's only when we're talking filming, there's only uh, five of us that are involved in this project. There's a composer, and, and he's been able to help us with, with actually going out and shooting some of our interviews and stuff. But uh, Brandon Dalos is our composer, and he's I think he's on board for the foreseeable future, at least for the next movie, which we're starting shooting hopefully by late June. So yeah, this is this is going to be a series where we examine small town monster reports. Um, whether or not we come away from these small town monster reports saying this was probably some weird unidentified animal, or this was you know maybe a black bear or a guy running around in a costume, uh, it's up in the air. It'll it'll depend on the case, and we kind of want to. I keep saying we want the audience to play detective. You know, we want you to to try to figure out what was going on because most of these are, we're not going to be able to solve most of these cases. You know, right. it's uh, this Minerva monster case is a perfect example because you have so many variables at play. I mean, there, there were black bear in the area, but the Catons insist it wasn't a black bear and the sheriff insists that there was no sign of a black bear. And so there's, there's a possible explanation, but it kind of gets shot down, but there's other explanations too. There's hoaxing. There's, I mean, there was weird stuff going on out in Minerva in, the, in that point in time, too. And I'm not a uh, a UFO Bigfoot connection guy, but there were UFO sightings out there around that same time. So, Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's, I was going to say, though, you said that Minerva has to be a, a central character in this and that these towns need to be characters in, in these documentaries. But it's so easy for a town to become identified by the legend, mm-hmm. and, and I think some places might be weary of that. Uh, you, you know, you look at a place like uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia, you know, Mothman Town, Roswell, New Mexico, UFO Town. I mean, it's so easy for them to become known only for that, that you have to be able to strike that balance and, and let people know that it's just part of their history. You know, like Dover, Mass. is known for a lot more than just the Dover Demon, but it's still part of that history. Sure, sure, and that's what we wanted to do. The first, uh, let me think, the first eight minutes of the movie are entirely about Minerva and its history and its people. Um, and that's something we were very insistent upon, you know, and I grew up actually probably 20 minutes from Minerva Tops. Uh, I used to eat there all the time with my family, and, and so I grew up not far at all from there. I had a lot of friends that lived in Minerva and grew up in Minerva, so I was acquainted with the town. It's funny, I had never heard of the Minerva monster until probably not until like 2003 when I started really getting into Bigfoot. But yeah, like, like you said, it's, there's so much more to these places than that. But on the other hand, I feel, I feel like these towns that don't embrace their monsters are making a big mistake because 
you know, there's a lot of people who love this sort of thing and, and who are really interested in this this type of subject and who would love to have a town that has a monster as its mascot, you know, and, and Minerva, thankfully, has embraced it. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this movie coming out, we're, we're actually going to have a Minerva Monster Day in Minerva on June 6th. Uh, we're going to show the movie at the Roxy Theater there and uh, throughout the day, probably three or four showings. And there's going to be vendors and that kind of thing. So the, the town is embracing it. I mean, if you drive into into Minerva today, there's Minerva monster posters hanging in a lot of storefront windows. And it's it's one of those things where, like you said, if it's done right and it becomes part of your culture, and I mean, it can be it can mean tourism dollars, it can mean uh, right. attention, it can mean you know, like look at a, a place like Salem, Mass, which turned its back on the witch culture for a long time, but then in a sense embraced it and it's become part of their identity and it's become mm-hmm. a huge you know windfall for them. And just because yeah. it, just because it's got a negative association in some people's mind doesn't mean you can't turn it into a positive. This is what's so interesting about this whole thing for me too is is I did a lot of small business reporting and and writing and that was what my column was about uh for the Massillon paper and and I see this happening all over America a lot of these small towns are drying up and and going away or just becoming you know broken down and decrepit and people move into the city and and the small town it's it's almost scary because I'm I'm afraid in where we're going to be in like 50 years with small towns, um, but it's you'd think if you have an opportunity to embrace something like this, you should. I mean, do whatever you can if if it's there, if there's something behind it, and even if there isn't necessarily uh, a realistic. If there if there wasn't a flesh and blood creature there, it's become a part of your local culture. It's it's a part of the the folklore, you know, that informs your community. Embrace it. Yeah, and and when you look at how it can impact the people, I mean, it can by embracing it, it can allow for more stories and more sightings to be told and be shared because it means that there's uh, the stigma has been removed. You don't have to worry about what your friends and neighbors are going to think of you if you come forward with a with an experience because now it's become part of the overarching identity of your community. Right. Right. Yeah, and it's funny um uh, there was a guy that was tweeting at us about uh the River Sticks monster um on on Twitter and he uh he that was one of the first of these small town monster reports that I started investigating and I'd even considered doing a Minerva monster or a River Sticks monster story for a small town monsters River Sticks monster is right near where I live actually 3 miles from where I live there's this little town called the River Sticks which is probably the coolest name for any that, small town that ever. is pretty badass yeah yeah, uh, and they have a haunted cemetery, and but but what they have also is this River Sticks monster, which during the seventies, it might have even been seventy eight, um, there was uh, all these sightings along River Sticks Road of this upright walking, hair covered creature, your typical Bigfoot report, you know, sounding thing, and it was the first one that I really looked into, and and what was so interesting about it is. If you talk, just like with Minerva, if you talk to some people in River Sticks, they've never heard of it. They'll kind of laugh it off. But then you'll talk to other people, and they're like, oh, yeah, um, my uncle saw this thing back in the woods. It's I grew up in Bolivar, Ohio, which is tiny. I mean, this little bird right off the, the highway. And we had Minnie the Mobster. 
You know, so there's like every town, it's not every town, but it seems like a lot of towns have their own little monster. And to, to kind of get to a chance to highlight that town, not just the monster, but the town itself with these stories and, and these, hopefully, you know, this will go on for a long time and we can do a lot of these. Um, that's what's so exciting for me. I mean, even here in the, you know, the New Bedford area, we have the Beast of Brooklawn Park, which was like a one, kind of like a one-time only uh, type creature that was seen running across the park in the 1960s. Uh, when I put together my book, Ghosts of the South Coast, the stories I heard were about a man-like creature with hoofed feet running through the park and emitting a high-pitched laugh. So this was uh, you know, one small rash of sightings in 1968. But people still talk about it. I just received an email from somebody recently who's collecting stories about it and, and thinks that they've had their own experience with it. So these stories are out there, and, and sometimes it just takes the right impetus for people to share them. Sure, and and they're not all Bigfoot reports. It does seem like a you know a lot of probably the bulk are Bigfoot type creature reports. But there's you know there's like the Flatwoods monster and that kind of thing, and those are the ones eventually. I can't wait to get into that type of thing because that's really interesting to me. Well, we do have a call on the line. If anybody has any questions for our guest, Seth Breedlove, the director of Minerva Monster, you can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 877-996-1420. You can also tweet them using the hashtag SpookyLive. want to give a big shout-out to my bro, Chad Lindbergh, for uh, tweeting about the show. He's, he's tuning in, and he's a big paranormal fan, as you guys know, from Ghost Stalkers. So uh, he says he believes in Bigfoot. So let's see if you guys do. Matt, you put that question out there on uh, on Twitter. Well, one of you did. Oh, good job, Stephanie. Nice to see you getting right into this. So the question's out there on Twitter. If you believe in Bigfoot or not, let us know and use the hashtag SpookyLive. But we'll go to the phones right now. Good evening. You're on with Seth. How are you? Hello. Hi. Do you have a question for our guest? Um, I have a statement, actually. Sure. Um, it has nothing to do with, with, uh, with Bigfoot. But it does have to do with a, a ghost. Okay. Um, when I was living with my mom on Stackhouse Street, she lived in this house on Stackhouse Street. And we would uh, we'd be sitting downstairs at the time, and there was this pounding, just because there was a, a, a pounding upstairs because it was an upstairs and it was it was like a, a running pounding like boom 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 like really really I mean you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't you couldn't uh, mistake that somebody was up there right right and I said mom I said what's that what's that uh, she says oh you know my mom God bless her soul she says Oh, that's my friend. Uh, she, because her, her boyfriend was, uh, uh, he, he at the time he worked for the Steamship Authority. And she says, "Oh, that's my friend. She keeps me company when Arthur's away." And uh, my wife actually at the time saw her. Wow. And uh, it was a girl. Because it was it was a really weird 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 uh, uh, situation. There, there was this there was this one particular closet that was like uh, with the uh, smoke glass and uh, bars in it and everything else like that. And uh, my wife saw her 
something something happened to this girl in either she was locked in this closet or something and uh she was uh all in my wife saw her at the time my wife at the time and she was uh, all dressed in a white uh uh, like an old, like an 1800s kind of a thing, uh, a gown, and she was like straggly looking and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely a very interesting report, and uh, and, and maybe sometime we can talk a little bit more in depth about it too. Yeah. All right. Well, that thank you was, for the call. Uh, okay. You have a great night. Yep. You too. Bye bye. And, uh, and of course, uh, Seth, you know, we talk a lot in the paranormal world about some of the crossover of activity that happens around a lot of these type sightings. And of course, you know, we, we live in the heart of the Bridgewater Triangle out here in spooky South Coast country. But there are a lot of similarities in a lot of places where you have Bigfoot sightings. There are also UFO sightings. There are also a high amount of ghost reports. Did you find that with Minerva? Was there any type of other types of paranormal activity that were being reported? Yeah, the the biggest one that I got was um, two weeks. I, I asked uh, James Shannon, who was the deputy sheriff who investigated the the report at the Caton's house. I asked him, you know, have you investigated? What are the two? What are the oddest, the weirdest cases you've ever, you know, investigated? And he said, well, well, the Minerva monster was one, and two weeks later, he got a call from. A family that lived directly across the street from the Catons who said a UFO landed in their their field, their cornfield. And uh, he drove out there and drove back the lane, a lane that ran into the cornfield and couldn't, for some reason, he said he got, you know, like, I don't know, a few hundred yards back down this lane. And then all of a sudden there's just corn piled in the middle of the road to the point where he couldn't move any further. So... He said that was the weirdest, you know, those, it was odd that those were the only two unusual incident reports he ever took in his career, which was, uh, long, <laughs> long and storied. And, uh, they happened within two weeks of each other in the same place. Now, I've said though, I, there was so much activity going on out there at that point that I'm sure there was all kinds of odd stuff taking place. I mean, flares and guys running around the woods with, you know, lanterns and any unusual activity report that would have come in following the Catons, you kind of have to put your skepticals on because there was so much stuff going on at that point with the hunters and the town kind of harassing the Catons. Uh, it, it just kind of blew up. Yeah, see, that's pretty interesting to me because, you know, now we have all this, you know, it's a subgenre of reality television where there are, you know, Bigfoot shows, people who go out and, and hunt these creatures, and uh, whether it be for scientific reasons or in some cases they're trying to bag a body. Uh, but when you talk about a lot of these older cases, it, it wasn't like that all the time. I mean, there, there were a lot of people that wanted to come out and, and have a sighting and, and have an experience, but I, I don't recall too many stories where, you know, they were descending upon the town rifles in hand uh planning on taking it out you know that that's pretty serious that that means that they took those stories uh pretty seriously as opposed to some of these other tales where they said well you know this person's probably just nuts uh, but what was the reaction of of the town to those hunters those bigfoot hunters that wanted to come and, and, and bag themselves a bigfoot I don't know what the town's direct reaction to them was. I know that it became a huge problem because, like I said, the, the Lincoln Highway got shut down because of these guys just parking right along the road. They parked in the Catons, uh, 
literally their front lawn. They would drive onto their lawn and just park and go running off into the woods like they own the place. Um, the the sheriff's re- reaction after about a day of this was to show up and start running people out of the woods. I mean, you know, with you know, threats of prison time and everything else. Um, and then, I mean, the, the the town's reaction to the story in general was that once once it kind of came out in the paper, the town really. Uh, I don't know. It's it's hard to generalize and just say the whole town did this, you know, obviously, because I'm sure it wasn't the whole town. I've, I've spoken to a lot of people from the town who believe the Catons were honest people, uh, good people, but they were definitely harassed. Uh, they went to a football game. The crowd started cheering Bigfoot at them. The local Pizza Hut had a sign up that said Bigfoot eats here. Um, there's definitely a lot of local color <laughs> aimed at the Caton family in general, how he told us about kids driving up and down the street at night screaming Bigfoot, you know, out the car and and he got harassed at school a lot about it. So I wonder if that I, was the birth of Pizza Hut's Bigfoot pizza. I wonder if that's where they came up with the original idea. Maybe. I don't know, but I miss that pizza. That, oh, so that was good. good. <laughs> what a treat. <laughs> but we we do see that happen though. I mean we we've seen other cases. I mean I've spent hours talking with Christopher Lutz uh, about the, what his family endured with the Amityville horror case and you know what they had to go through growing up. And, and I believe in my heart of hearts that the family has PTSD from what they went through. And it, and it could be the same thing for something like this where all of a sudden, you know, all these your quiet little town becomes disruptive and, and people are blaming you for it. It's probably something that you can never quite get over. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd go so far as to call the PTSD what the Catons had, but um, I talked to Rebecca, who's some of the Catons have you know passed away. It was back in '78, and some of them were getting up there even back then. Um, the Catons' mother, she passed away, and and there was a really interesting story. This is kind of a rabbit trail, but the Catons' mother had a weird connection with the creature, according to Rebecca, who is I think the oldest daughter. She told me that her mother was sick. And any time the, the mother was outside, Evelyn, any time Evelyn was outside, this creature would show up. She said you could bank on it. If she was outside, this thing was going to show up, wow. uh, which I thought was a really neat story, and I wish we had it in the film. But, you know, like we're talking about, Rebecca refused to come on camera. She, she'll she tell you, I mean, she'd probably talk to you today if you gave her a call. She'd tell you the whole story beginning to end. But she refuses to come on camera. She doesn't want anything to do with the story mm-hmm. in the public eye. She doesn't want her name mentioned. She doesn't want any of that. And that all stems from from the you know 1978 sightings. And it's the same. You know, obviously, like I said at the beginning, it's the same story with Howie. They just the the reaction and their the way they feel about how the town reacted and just Bigfoot in general. I mean, Howie has a general distaste for how. Bigfoot is portrayed in popular culture and on shows like Finding Bigfoot. He he hates it. He can't stand it. So to him, to him, this isn't a monster. This is you know this is an animal, and it's a curious animal who doesn't mean anyone any harm. Should be left alone. That's his take on the Minerva monster. But let, let's kind of explore that that rabbit hole a little bit. Where you know you mentioned that having a connection to Evelyn, and what do you think would be the reason for that? I mean, it's not uncommon for a 
a wild animal to have a, a connection with a human. You know, I, I know that Matt and I used to work at a restaurant, and there was a duck that used to come to the back door. And every time he came back from flying south every winter, he knew to come to the back door because he knew we were going to feed him. You know, there can be that connection between uh, a wild animal and a person. So they, this creature could have very well have somehow made a, a connection beyond just knowing when that person's out there. But then again, it also could lead to something a little bit more paranormal as well. Yeah, I have two thoughts on it. Um, one is, I, I know my dog, when, when I'm sick, she senses it. I don't know what the deal is there. She comes around, she sits with me. She's very different from how she usually is. It could be something like that. I mean, I know that sounds a little far-fetched, but it's possible. The other thing is that I think Evelyn was actually the one who would feed this thing. Um, the sheriff actually instructed her to put scraps and stuff in the strip pit behind their house, which is where this creature was seen multiple times. And I think Evelyn was actually the one who would carry up the scraps and throw them down into the pit. So it's possible that, like your duck, uh, this this creature might have seen her as you know the the one bringing it its its food. It's a really interesting aspect of the story, and a, and, a, and a really sad one too. The way Rebecca told it to me, especially, was that now now it's interesting. Rebecca says the creature doesn't come around anymore. Now I don't know if she was telling me that because she didn't want me coming back out to look for Bigfoot, you know, because that's kind of their reaction to Bigfoot hunters, or if she, you know, her opinion just differs from the rest of the Caton family who say that these things are still in the woods. But Rebecca told me that after her mother passed, it the creature quit coming around, and she told me, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like the summer her mom, her mom died, she went up into the woods, and she stood there, and she just knew it was gone. She said you could sense that it wasn't there anymore. It's a, it's a, it's one of these interesting, deferring opinions on this story that we picked up. You know, while we're filming, we had so many little bits of information that one person would tell us, and then someone else would tell us a completely different piece of it. Not nothing major, just little pieces of the story that didn't line up, um, which I think is probably down to the fact that this happened 36 years ago, you know, when you're talking. One of the most interesting was, um, I think I can talk about this probably, uh, Howie, we were out interviewing uh, Howie, and, and Howie kept talking to us about how the National Guard was on their property driving through the woods looking for Bigfoot, and I thought we had stumbled upon this amazing aspect of the story that no one knew about where it's almost like a government cover-up the national guard there <laughs> you know and i got so excited because i was like this is great i've never heard this um, but what we found out was that it more than likely was the sheriff and four deputies who did show up the next day in a in a uh army issued surplus jeep so it's like a surplus jeep but painted with uh the police colors so i think with 36 years on him how he's just probably misremembering that, you know, tiny bit of information from the story. Uh, or, for all I know, who knows? I mean, maybe the National Guard actually was there. I kind of hope they are, because that, that makes it even cooler. I mean, that makes the story and uh, takes it to a whole other level. But it's it's interesting what 36 years does to tiny bits of information, you know? Yeah, that, that's the other problem that you're fighting with this, is you're fighting time. Uh, in, in producing this film, and you're fighting the fact that not only do people's memories fade, uh, but sometimes people's, uh, you know, ability to 
remember things truthfully fades as well. You know, over the years, the story has become embellished in their minds, uh, and it's become something a little bit more. Or sometimes, you know, they don't. It's not even a, a conscious thing that they're aware of. You know, sometimes you have this one little experience, and then other things that you see and hear kind of have an influence in it. So the fact that you might have had one little tiny sighting of this creature back in 1978 now that you've seen you know harry and the hendersons in the 80s and then you've seen all these bigfoot shows coming out uh you know in modern times it could have expanded the story in your mind without you even realizing it so you're you're battling that a little bit as well as a filmmaker oh yeah absolutely and and we've had uh while we're editing my editor has called me and he's been like listen we have we have james shannon saying Oh, he just called me about something last week, and it was a point, uh, not nothing major. It was one person claiming that they had taken hair and a bone sample to a local university, and another person saying they never made it to the university, that it went missing before that, something like that. He's like, which one do you want me to put in there? And I said, both. I, I, I want that in the movie, because I think that's a really interesting side to the story where you do have this like you said we're playing against time here and some of these people are misremembering things or they have stories that just don't line up and i think that's what i'm talking about when i say i want the audience to be the detective i mean figure it out let's let's all figure it out together yeah, and that was, I mean, we talked uh, extensively with Aaron Kaju about the Bridgewater Triangle documentary, and he's a total skeptic when it comes to all things paranormal. Uh, but that was kind of his approach, was just let the people tell their story the way that they remembered it, and and then the audience can decide from there and, and who they want to believe and who they don't want to believe. And I think that's probably the, the only way that you can do the story justice, because if you come into it with your own approach, as we've seen some of these other documentaries and television shows do, you're doing a disservice to some of those people because you're already judging them before they've even shared their story. You're already judging that experience before they've even told it to you. Uh, whereas in, yeah. in, in this regard, you know, you're, by being open to it, you could end up finding something that you know, might be a tiny little thing here in the Minerva monster story, but then when you start putting together more of these episodes of small town monsters, you start picking up on recurring themes and, and then that can lead to an even bigger discovery. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think too, this series as a whole and and this particular movie is so different from what I've seen in other um, cryptid documentaries. Um, it's it's just we we bypass the narrator, we bypass doing any kind of recreations. We brought in a lot of you know police sketches and eyewitness uh, recounts and and that kind of thing, and we are letting the people that live the story tell the story and i haven't seen that exactly in this line of you know entertainment this kind of cryptid entertainment field yeah. I, I don't know that i've ever seen it actually it becomes too easy to either use the creature as a character or to use the creature as a storytelling device for other characters uh which mm. you know you're not you're taking the wrong focus if you do that but it works i mean it works for television shows cuz they're getting viewership and they're getting renewed for multiple seasons so right. know, they know what they're doing in that regard but in terms of documentary storytelling it doesn't really kind of add up that way well i i think there's a hunger for this though i really do i think i think there's a reason our kickstarter has succeeded where a lot of these other bigfoot uh Centric Kickstarter campaigns, crowdfunding campaigns didn't succeed, um, and we didn't ask for much, but we we got well beyond what we were asking for, and it was 
a total surprise, but I think a lot of that comes down to the fact that what we're what we're putting out there, you know, and telling people we're making is so different from from kind of the other stuff that you see. And I think there might be a hunger for this kind of thing. I really do. Well, when you are uh, working on this and, and, and putting it out there as a, as a Kickstarter, uh, you mentioned that you weren't asking for much, but there's been that reaction. Were you clear in the focus of how you were going to handle it uh, when you were looking for people to make donations? Because I think audiences are really responding these days to uh, filmmakers feeling like they feel the audience is intelligent enough to make up their own minds as opposed to just being preached to as some other documentaries have in the past. Yeah, uh, yeah, we were, yeah, we were as clear as we could be. I, I, we might have even mentioned it in the uh, the lead-in video that we did. You know, where you're you're you have to sit and talk in front of a camera about what your movie is and what your project is. Um, I do think from the beginning we've discussed that and we've put it out there and, and pretty much any of the media appearances we've done that that's our plan. I mean, that's that is my ultimate goal is to make this as un dramatized and unromanticized as as we can and not to say that it isn't going to be dramatic because i i think the people telling the story is what makes this whole thing so fascinating you know like i i was fascinated by the caton story because i read uh the the articles that ran in the beacon journal and i read ron schaffner's bfro report and i read other reports you know it wasn't it wasn't watching a reenactment of a creature, you know, run out of the woods and, and terrorize the family. And I don't have anything against, like, I don't have anything directly against shows like, um, you know, like Monsters and Mysteries. I actually enjoy stuff like that. But I just think that there's, that that area is covered, so let's do something different, you know. And you, you mentioned the Bridgewater Triangle documentary. That was, like, a big inspiration for me. I saw that, you know, about it, whenever that first went up online, um, and really enjoyed it, and I thought that was such a neat way. And it's the production values on that thing. I don't know what they did, but that thing looked gold. I mean, that was a golden documentary. It looked beautiful. Well, uh, I'm sure Aaron will be happy to, to hear you say that because uh, he's he's uh, somebody who always felt that you know if you did the story the right way, the film would have the impact. And and I told him again and again, you know, it's also your visuals, man. It's not just the story. It's the, the eye that he had for, for telling that story uh, that uh, really made a difference for people. So he'll be very glad to hear that. Uh, one, one of the things that is most interesting to me about this, too, is the fact that you are able to put this together into a series uh, and, and focus on some of these cases. It just means that there's a lot of stories out there uh, to be able to make multiple documentaries about. Tons, tons. We... we... We're, um, I don't know that I'm at liberty yet. I hadn't discussed it with anyone, but we, I mean, we were already at work on the next one. Um, obviously our editor's still working on the current one on Minerva Monster, but I've already begun the research phase for the next movie. Um, and we're actually going to stay inside Ohio. At least that's what it's looking like right now. Um, just because the the support of the Ohio community has been so huge, and for a little indie film, I mean, you couldn't get more like grassroots and indie and guerrilla filmmaking than we we were. I mean, we just showed up in Minerva one day and started shooting, and it just worked out that we weren't kicked off Main Street, you know, on our first day out there. It was actually the opposite. Um, uh, the Historical Society actually opened their doors and told us to come in and shoot some of our interviews in the Historical Society. So, but the next movie is is definitely going to be. In Ohio, and then I mean, you're talking Ohio, big deal. There's, you know, all these other states. We've got Momo, and 
big muddy monster and that we we haven't seen this type of approach to those stories either and that's the thing like we're focusing on this one creature for 45 minutes to an hour or whatever it ends up being i think it's 45 minutes right now is what we're looking at for the first movie um it's it's it hasn't been seen before i haven't seen one case just dissected like this and i think it's it's almost like a an unsolved mysteries kind of thing you know where you're and and it is like I said earlier, like Flatwoods Monster and the Mothman. Once you move outside of the Bigfoot phenomenon, it opens it up even more. Well, when you do start doing that, though, you you, you know when you're looking at some of these stories that are well known, as well as some of the ones that aren't aren't so well known, you do have the chance of giving it a different eye and getting away from some of the uh, stories that we've heard. I mean, just just taking a, a quick look at say the Mothman story, you know, that's something that I think. That, I look at that, and there's no way that in my mind that that can be anything, quote-unquote, cryptid. I mean, if Mothman is, is the real creature, that the way people portrayed it, it had to have been something supernatural. And it had to have yeah. been some sort of harboring error of uh, what was going to be happening in Point Pleasant at the time, because we've seen it happen. And I said harboring instead of harbinger. I, I don't know what was wrong with me there. But still, you know what I mean. It was, you know, the fact that it showed up and there was all these other weird things, the whole injured cold story around it. I mean, you're talking about a case that has to be supernatural and, and has to be beyond just a flesh and blood creature. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the other thing about that Mothman case is um, I don't feel like people have really explored the sightings that took place on the Ohio side, like the Gallipolis area. That's Gallipolis, right? I think it's Gallipolis where the other sightings were. And I, I think everything is typically centered around that Point Pleasant, which makes sense because of the, you know, the bridge and everything. But but being in Ohio, I'm so fascinated by Ohio history. But there's, yeah, there's, we've talked about doing a Mothman movie, and uh, it's on the list. I'll tell you, we had a short list of like five titles, five five monsters, mm-hmm. and um, Mothman was probably in the top three actually. So it's it's going to be on there. Momo is the one I've wanted to do forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I I think that story is so interesting, and I love that that. The very first newspaper article that ran about Momo was titled "There's Something on Mars Off Hill," and I thought I thought wow. that title sounded like the title of an old, like an old '50s horror movie. You can picture like a black and white Bigfoot movie or something, and I I thought that sounded so so great. I'd love to do that. So so Momo has got to be done eventually. We got to do Momo. As of now, uh, we're looking towards the Mansfield area in Ohio. That's all I can say. Oh, well, I know some of the places out that way and, and some of the stories that might be associated, so I'm very intrigued with that. One, one of the uh, things that I find, I mean, I, I was on an episode of Monster Quest, so I, I saw kind of firsthand the way that they took an approach to the topic that we were discussing in that episode, and that episode was Ghosts, which I am very proud to say was the lowest-rated episode of Monster Quest in the history of that series and is still the most reviled by the fans of the show. I mean, if you go to any of the Monster Quest message boards, they kill that episode. They cannot stand that episode, and they think that it has no place in the Monster Quest series. So I'm very proud of my work on that show. But um, the, the fact that that is... You know, such a, a, a such a line of demarcation for fans of cryptids. They don't want to hear anything about ghosts. They don't want to hear anything about UFOs. They don't want to hear about those connections. Is that something that you shy away from? I mean, if the stories are there, uh, if, if the stories are going to be coming about from the witnesses that it was beyond just the creature, are you willing to explore and go down those roads as well? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I think I think that side of the story is so is so fascinating, and also at heart, I am a storyteller. So if that is part of the overall story, and it's big enough for me to to explore within the film, you know, like the Minerva Monster movie, I don't think we actually we might, but I don't think we have the UFO mentioned in the movie just because there wasn't anything to it beyond Shannon getting a call and going to the house. Mm-hmm. Um, there were no other eyewitnesses. The family that was there has passed away. So it was this and it was this aspect of the story that we just didn't have enough information on. And also it would have felt like a rabbit trail out of nowhere. Like all of a sudden we're just talking about this UFO that right. had probably nothing to do. It wasn't like someone saw the Bigfoot come out of the UFO, which I would you know, that'd be great if I could see that. Um, but no, if if something like that comes up in connection with a story that we are working on, I 100% would love to explore that. I think that's I I think that's uh, like I said about the Bridgewater. That's golden. Like you get into that area and and you get to go down these rabbit trails where you actually do have witnesses and you have these side stories to kind of explore. I think that stuff is is really fascinating. Now, in terms of the Minerva Monster documentary, you have some some great stuff planned uh, coming out with the official release of the film. What are, what are some of the events that you have planned? You had mentioned earlier about having the day uh, in Minerva, but it seems like there's a lot of different things that you have uh, coming down the pipeline. Yeah, we have uh, the premiere is going to take place at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference on May 16th out at Salt Fork State Park. Um, that's Mark DeWurst's big uh, conference that's... You know, a few thousand people last year. It's pretty enormous. Um, we're going to premiere the movie there on Saturday night, and the movie will be available for purchase there on Saturday. That'll be the first time it's available to actually purchase. It'll be on streaming venues and all that stuff as well. I know we're going to get up on uh, Vimeo and Amazon eventually, so it'll be online as well. But um, So that's May 16th. And then June 6th in the town of Minerva, we are doing the Minerva Monster Day, which was a completely unexpected uh, event that just I, – I didn't propose it. We actually went to the Chamber of Commerce to ask if we could rent their theater, and we were going to do the premiere out there you know, and invite locals for free, and people can come see the movie. As just us you know, giving something back to Minerva because they were so great to us, and – uh, Denise, the the lady that runs the Chamber of Commerce, she told me, let's do something else. She's like, we had a board meeting. We want to give you the theater for the day. Um, you know, let's get some vendors out here. Let's do multiple showings throughout the day and turn it into a Minerva Monster Day. So, so basically, that's where we're at. We're doing Minerva Monster Day, June 6th, starting probably 12 o'clock in the afternoon. And I think our first showing is scheduled for 1230. People are, we're going to we're going to have people uh, email us if they want a specific showing, but as of right now, we don't have the exact times locked in. But if people want to email uh, smalltownmonsters at gmail.com and specify what time of day they're wanting to come. I know there's going to be a 1230 showing. I think the other one's going to be at 3 and then a 5 o'clock. I believe that's where we're at right now. Um, but that's all, you know, we're obviously quite a ways away from June, so we're still getting that all locked in. And I've never been an event planner, so this is like a whole new uh, <laughs> role for me that I wasn't expecting. But Let me, let me tell uh, you, from somebody with event planning experience, June mm-hmm. is not as far away as you think. Yeah, not to make oh, you a little bit you. more nervous about it, but 
it's yeah. uh, it, it'll come up quickly. But if people want to get a hold of the film and they they're not in the area, of course, they can order it online. Yeah, uh, grassmangear.com, which is the the uh, storefront that. Alan and Jesse, my my producers, run. Uh, they have a lot of different Bigfoot, Ohio Bigfoot merchandise, but grassmangear.com is where we're actually – you can even pre-order the movie now along with the awesome Minerva Monster T-shirt, which is like this really cool retro design that we had done. It looks like an old 1970s horror movie T-shirt or something. It's so great. Um, we have that done, and then the poster's on there for pre-order. We have Blu-ray, too. You can pre-order Blu-ray. Uh, and that's all available for Grassman Gear. Excellent. And, and of course, uh, if anybody wants to follow along with all the updates about the film, facebook.com slash Minerva Monster and, uh, and other social media outlets to follow as well. And the film trailer is also up on YouTube if people want to see it that way as well. Yeah, YouTube. Uh, we're on Small Town Monsters on YouTube, and definitely check out the trailer and share it with your friends. We should have another trailer actually coming up during April. So... Excellent. Well, we certainly look forward to uh, great success for the film, and hopefully you'll check back in with us and update us on some of the other films in the series as well. Yeah, thanks for having me on. This has been a blast. Oh, and and, and definitely keep us up to date with everything and, and let us know how things go and when everything's available for streaming. It will help spread the word. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Thank you so much, Seth. Have a great night. You too. And that is our guest, Seth Breedlove. He is the director of the film Minerva Monster, which, again, you can pre-order for yourself by going to grassmangear.com. I'm on the site right now. You can see that poster. You can see the T-shirts. It's uh, it's a great site, easy to navigate, so go check it out, and you'll be able to uh, see some of that stuff and, and order the film for yourself. I'm pretty excited to see the film because, you know, when that that's the key for me is to have a filmmaker say, I don't want to try to shape the story. I just want to let the people who experience it tell the story. Yeah, that's always a nice thing to have people be able to make the decision for themselves. So many documentaries these days, especially where they've become so highly stylized, it's about here's my opinion. Right. Here's what we think, and we're going to take you down the road that proves what it is that we think. Which can actually turn people off. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I think Michael Moore is a very interesting filmmaker, but if I don't agree with what he's talking about, I'm not interested in watching the entire, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, the entire movie, uh, the entire documentary. So I don't know. I, I just think that uh, if more paranormal topics can be covered in an objective manner, and I, I think that, just as Seth said, you know, Bridgewater Triangle kind of set that bar, yes. and I think that now we're seeing uh, people willing to explore it with that mindset, and that's going to just make it a lot easier for folks who don't believe in the paranormal to digest. I agree. Well, that about does it for this week's show. The time flew by, I have to say. I love when we get a chance to talk about a case like this that might not be familiar to our local audience, but you see from the tweets that we were getting and, and some mm-hmm. of the questions we were getting, you know, people are excited to hear about these cases from all over, just as people are excited to hear about some of the Massachusetts stories mm-hmm. around the rest of the world. The next week, our guest will be uh, Katie Bartolino, who is part of a paranormal group out of uh, Worcester area. Mm-hmm. She's going to be joining us to talk about her work, her research that she's been doing in the need to have the correlation between skeptics and believers when it comes to paranormal investigation. And I think it's a, a very interesting topic, especially at a time when, you know, just recently uh, we've had skeptics uh, who have come out and said, uh, I believe it was Michael Sharma, who was a big skeptic, coming mm-hmm. out and saying, you know, he had an experience and he now believes. So Very interesting. And we have more investigators who probably need to be a little bit more skeptical. 
I agree with that completely. So we'll cover all of that next week with our guest, Katie, and she'll, she'll share with us what she's found in her research of it and give us some advanced info uh, in the book that she's working on. And, of course, if you're new to the show, if you've never heard the program before, SpookySouthCoast.com is our website. You can find years, and I'm talking years, of archives, both there and wherever podcasts are found, places like iTunes and Player.fm and, and some of these other sites, uh, Stitcher podcast app has it. It's everywhere. And you can find all of our archives up there. They are free of charge. Doesn't cost you anything. Well, like, probably like, what, like 600 shows now we've done? Five or 600 shows that we've done? All available, all free. You can't go wrong. You give somebody, you know, an iPod or or something like that, there's no excuse not to give it preloaded with Spooky South Coast content. And we, we don't even charge you a dime for it. Uh, and, th- and that's what I think is great about this as well as other areas. Uh, you can explore it in a good way, uh, in a cheap way as well, because it's free. <laughs> Until next week, stay spooktacular.